Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of our show sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Mentorship is 20 hours of top class online video strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes. Check it out and help support the show. Secondly, I want to give a shout out to Altus360 and the Altus Foundation Coaching Course, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available. Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft. Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming. Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore. And Program Design, delivered by Coach Robert Dos Remedios. For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beast, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent continuing educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, you can check out the show notes to get links to all the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus360 and the Altus Foundation Coaching Course, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before today's interview, I just wanted to let all listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel like you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you would be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling. Let's get into today's interview. This episode's guest is Nick Littlehales from sportsleepcoach.co.uk. Nick is regarded as the leading elite sports sleep coach in world sport. Nick is a leading industry expert with over 30 years of experience in the world of sleep, sleeping habits and product design and for over 15 years has been dedicated to the performance of elite athletes in professional sport. A former professional golfer, international sales and marketing director of Slumberland Group and chairman of the UK Sleep Council, Nick has conducted many practical and clinical research projects into the varied sleeping habits adopted by the modern-day sleeper and athlete. His unique and passionate techniques, products and proven approach are endorsed by leading professionals in world sport and business. Nick is also the author of the book Sleep, the myth of eight hours, the power of naps, and a new plan to recharge your mind and body. On this episode, Nick and I discussed many topics, including Nick's background and Nick's influences. Nick and I discussed the first five of the seven key steps to optimize sleep and restoration that he outlines in his book. Nick discusses why having a consistent wake-up time is an important daily anchor to possess. Nick discusses the importance of understanding what a circadian rhythm is to optimizing your sleep. Nick discusses the importance of understanding your chronotype. Nick shares with us why it is important to consider sleep in 90-minute cycles rather than hours. 
Nick talks about the importance of having a pre and post bedtime routine. Nick and I discuss about how the circadian rhythm that you were born in may potentially never leave your genetic makeup. Nick tells us why he decided to use 90 minutes as his recommended cycle length. Nick talks about how the light bulb changed your sleeping cycle from polyphasic to monophasic. Nick shares his thoughts on regulating sleeping patterns with the seasons. Nick shares his thoughts on using a daylight lamp in winter and other light regulation strategies to improve your overall sleep performance and health. Nick tells us why that if you don't snooze, you will lose, as he discusses why naps and multiple mini mental breaks, what Nick terms controlled recovery periods throughout the day, are excellent strategies to enhance physical and mental performance. I asked Nick if he feels it is still a better strategy to get the majority of our sleep nocturnally than in multiple bouts throughout a 24-hour period. Guys, this was an absolutely outstanding episode with Nick, and I hope you really, really enjoyed. Okay, Nick Lindhales, it's an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you come on to the All Things Strength and Wellness podcast. Just for the listeners, Nick, who might be too familiar with who you are, uh, just fill us in on your background. Um, yeah, it's great to be on your podcast, Robbie. Um, looking forward to the chat. And um, my background, uh, tried to play a lot of sport when I was a teenager, like most. Uh, had a little spell as a professional golfer a uh, long, long time ago, late 70s, early 80s. Different world, different sport. Uh, things have certainly changed till then, but I uh, ended up, because I wasn't going to travel the world and be a superstar, I uh, I gave that sport up and got married, started a family, and joined a company called Slumberland Beds, um, running around selling sleeping products to, to retailers uh, to pay the mortgage. Um, probably a lot of skill sets learned from being an independent professional a golfer, uh, all the disciplines that you have to have uh, to do that, um, sort of rubbed off into that job. Um, so within five years, um, I ended up sitting on the board as the sales and marketing director for the company. Um, and because we had licensees all over the world uh, using the brand, uh, the brand was a very as uh, one of the top brands in the world. Uh, so we're always innovators and leaders. So I was always looking to uh, develop things. So that was my job for them. And traveling around the world, watching how everybody sleeps and their various habits and different places on the planet. And we didn't have a sleep council in the UK. So uh, a few colleagues and myself set up the UK Sleep Council. Uh, and that's still going today, and I was the chairman for that for a while. So along that path, um, touch base with a lot of academics in sleep, a lot of clinics, a lot of universities, uh, put research in place to try and you know correlate the relationship with how important sleep was, but with the population. Certainly within the product arena, uh, beds, um, it's pr- pretty much the only time anybody invests in in their sleep is when they think mattresses and pillows are going to change the way they sleep yeah. when they go and buy one. But there was a, such a lot of naivety, misunderstandings. Um, I'd always learnt that, uh, you know, we sleep for eight hours at night. 
uh, and that's what we try and do as humans. But I also found out along the route that that wasn't the case. And there was a lots of things that would come out of the academic world. They weren't really too interested in us as human beings, what we get up to every day. They're just more interested in the, the clinical process of sleeping and, uh, and serious sleep disorders. So I just, you know, maybe a bit of a midlife crisis was sat in my office in Oldham, Manchester. Um, down the road was Manchester United Football Club. So I'd already decided to leave the company. We had a number of acquisitions, which had just got a bit boring. Um, and I thought, well, I'll write to, to Manchester United and see, you know, if they do anything in recovery or sleep or anything, uh, that might be of interest. Uh, the operative word then, Robbie, was write to them, mm. putting a letter on a, on an envelope. What's that? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was actually Alex Ferguson, the manager at the time, wrote back and said, you know, ask the question of his staff. They don't do anything. I mean, we're talking late 90s here. Um, but the physio at the time, a chap called Dave Fever, um, became interested. Like a lot of people like yourself, Robbie, um, you get interested to learn uh, and develop and things keep changing. So you have to keep, you know, maybe something that sounds a little bit crazy today may not be in a few years' time. Uh, and so I was invited over to the club. Uh, engaged in dialogue with Dave Fever. It was principally about uh, one of the players, a centre-half called Gary Pallister, who had um, got pretty serious lower back issues, so they're wrapping up in cotton wool. Uh, so he wouldn't train, he would only play. Yeah, you were uh, you were saying in the book that they were nearly thinking about like clearing out some seats at the back of the bus for him. He was that bad. Yeah, they were very close to you know trying to put in some sort of adjustable bed product into the coach. So you wow. know. Because it was, it was quite serious, and they don't like going in with a knife with lower back mm. uh, unless it's serious. So they were just trying to protect it as much as they possibly could. But all that happened, principally because of my competence with product, um, is that I was able to just check out what he was sleeping on in his home. Uh, classically, it was some orthopedic, chiropractic, rock-hard bed, because that's what somebody had advised him to do. Uh, and so Dave came up with this this term called dehabilitation. So while they were rehabilitating him when he was around the club, uh, when he was at home, it was just dehabilitating because he was lying on something and sleeping, taking it all sorts of different positions, trying to make it comfortable, which was translating down into the lower back and just making it worse. So that's how it first started. And then around those conversations, all my competence in the in the knowledge of sleep and and the myths and the misunderstandings created uh, a dialogue with the club that became of interest. Um, and, you know, to shorten that story now, um, a number of those players within Manchester United also played for the, the England national squad. Uh, some of the information they were gathering from what I was passing on into Manchester United, into the players, into the staff, um, with the support of... Alex Ferguson, um, they'd had a pretty significant time winning a treble for the first time ever. So there was a lot of focus on the Manchester United, the class of 92, Beckham and Giggs and Scholes and the Neville brothers, um, and Alex Ferguson, Manchester United, and a dramatic treble win against Bayern Munich. Um, 
So there was a lot of interest around the club. Uh, so some of this information translated on into the England squad. That triggered off a conversation with myself and the England physio at the time, Gary Lewin, who was also shared with Arsenal. That triggered off uh, a workshop to be set up with Arsenal Football Club. So we had the whole team in a room in conference style uh, with me suddenly having to become a sleep coach um, because it was the media who'd actually said there's some guy going in and out of Manchester United Football Club teaching those pampered players how to sleep. Um, and so they came up with the title, you know, Manchester United's got a sleep coach. So it was actually at Arsenal with Arsene Wenger and Gary Lewin and the whole squad where I first had to deliver, uh, you know, an elite sports sleep coach workshop to a bunch of players. And so it was at that particular time when sort of trying to redefine this subject for them, trying to add some relevance to it, things that they could do uh, that were practical and achievable, not just go on about all the sort of clinical stuff and everything else. It was just trying to help them use some simple techniques, understandable techniques, um, to so they could start doing something. And, you know, then just word of mouth started to, to kick in. So... Liverpool, Bolton, um, Chelsea, Blackburn, clubs just started to get intrigued. Um, there's certainly no sports science guys around, uh, very few strength and conditioning coaches. There was certainly no data collection. Uh, and we had no social media and very few of us had phones. You know, it's sort of a weird old world. And along the route, um, you know, working with British cycle, British cycling, and their strategy to to put British riders on the Tour de France podium, which they achieved in the end. But in the background, because of the aggregation of marginal gains, I was involved with that whole process because of sleep and recovery, and that had a pretty major impact on London 2012 Olympics, both the male and female cycling road and track, but also the Paralympic cycling team. So. You know, as as the years have passed, there's been two thing, three things going on really. Uh, my experience has continued to develop, so we now have a fairly structured approach. Um, the subject of sleep has become a very significant subject for pretty much everybody in the population, mainly because of all the well-being red flags that we're seeing now. Um, and you know, since the late 90s to where we are now, we are immersed in a 24-7 world that removes pretty much every opportunity to get a little bit of recovery, whether you plan it or not. Um, schedules and athletes and coaches are just pushing us like mad to deal with increased game time, 24-7, travel, media, you know, everything just pushes the human being right to the edge and because they don't have any sort of educational process through schooling or from parents, there's no books in school about sleep, you don't talk about it in a biology class, is invariably you just see people taking this for granted, they don't have approach, and by default is if you keep changing the way your lifestyle operates and pushing yourself harder and harder, then eventually it's going to crack. So... You know, my work at this moment in time is completely focused on on that educational process and 
helping individuals to get from A to B. And uh, it's become a far more significant uh, impact on my life and my business and the subject matter I'm in because, you know, a book was launched over 12 months ago, almost to the day. And since that book went out, it's gone into 13 countries. And so we're getting a lot of inquiries from all ways, not just elite sport, from every single angle on the population. So there you go. There's a long, long answer to your question. And all of that from a stamped letter. Yeah. That's amazing. So just a little quick question here for you too. Aston Villa, eh? So uh, how, how are you? Aston Villa. Aston, <laughs> Aston Villa. How, how did they accept an Aston Villa supporter when he went to United? Well, <clears throat> you know, I think... Um, I'm a Liverpool supporter, by the way. Just, uh, just, oh, yeah. just add that into the fire. I think there's, um, there's sort of, you know, in any particular sport... There is obviously uh, the competitive nature of it. And in certain sports, you do have, you know, teams that are trying to beat each other. But inside every organization, there is a team of people who are looking after the athletes or players. And that's where their focus is. It's not necessarily. um, So from physios to doctors and sports science guys and everything like that and girls, uh, their focus is on how can we, you know, improve the athlete, the player, how we can look after them, uh, make them available to play more often, deal with injury times and various other things. Um, so pretty much it doesn't matter whether I'm an Aston Villa fan or a Liverpool fan or whatever it is. And certainly in the modern world today, you know, there's very few coaches who work with national teams or even look at the Premiership Football League at the moment. You know, that's... That's completely changed when I was walking around. I think about 90% of the Manchester United squad were homegrown British players. Mm-hmm. Not anymore. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's been another thing that's gone on. But uh, funnily enough, Aston Villa is the only club, you know, there's quite a lot of clubs around the world I haven't worked with. But principally, uh, never knocked on my door. I think the most difficult one is actually going into Wolverhampton Wanderers or Birmingham City or West Bromwich Albion because they're they're more competitors to Aston Villa than anybody else. (laughs) So, Nick, a question I'd like to ask every guest that comes onto the show before we get into the specific questions of why the guest is on. In terms of your influences, who have been the biggest influences on you, not only professionally but also personally? Um, And just when you get into your professional uh, influences, Maybe, you know, you said that you, you spent some time with some of the researchers within um, within sleep. So is there any any ones within the sleep community in terms of researchers that really influence you? So basically, who have been your biggest influences professionally and personally? Professionally and personally? Mm. Um, professionally, um, there would be a Professor Chris Idzikowski. Mm. You mentioned him um, in your book. Yeah, um, we we became friends when I was chairman of the UK Sleep Council. He was the uh, the clinical expert who we drafted in to help work with us and provide that clinical expertise. Um, and he was somebody who, you know, was was not uh, was very comfortable, you know, with my experience. And and we did we did a lot of work together. Uh, and shared a lot of experiences and uh, whereas a lot of other clinical sides of the world of sleep they, they sort of wouldn't even have spoken to me to be honest 
um, because they wouldn't agree with my approach. Um, but he was a big influencer. Um, the person who actually first employed me at Slumberland as a rep was uh, a guy called Morgan McCarthy. Um, he took a major, as he tells me even when I see him today, um, he took a major risk in taking me on um, because I got no experience in that field, never done it before, um, was somebody who was quite independent, was a professional golfer, so how on earth was I going to be able to sell beds and drive around in a car? But he basically flicked a coin and it came down and he took a chance. Um, the other one uh, was a guy called Nick Broad. He was a, a professional nutritionist. He was based in Blackburn, Blackburn Rovers Football Club. It was actually Dave Fever, the physio who first engaged me, would also be somebody. Because without that conversation with Dave Fever at Manchester United, I wouldn't be here today. Um, Nick Broad was working with him at Blackburn Rovers. Nick got very interested in the subjects of recovery. We became friends. He moved on to Birmingham City and got me involved there. He moved on to Chelsea Football Club and became uh, their head of medical science and performance. Um, and, you know, we were always encouraging each other to develop this area of recovery and sleep. He always found it fascinating and really found what I did fascinating. Um, unfortunately, Nick passed away through tragic circumstances um, some time ago, but he was a great influencer. And a little bit random, but uh, when I first set up as an assistant golf professional, I was at this golf course called Little Aston in Sutton Coalfield, and there was a very old professional who was related to the club and was quite well known in the golfing world, certainly if you're a certain age, called Charlie Ward. And Charlie Ward was a recognized professional around the country. Um, he'd done one or two things, winning various trophies and a bit of a character. And he'd always been associated with the club. And I would be practicing, you know, hitting my thousand balls a day or whatever. And uh, Charlie would come across and sit on his walking stick and just watch and uh, make some comments, you know, some of them not good. Um, and then one day he took me. We used to have little wooden benches where you could sit waiting to tee off. So about, I don't know, two foot wide, uh, just a wooden bench. And he used to, we'd both grab a equivalent of a six iron and we would actually stand on the wooden bench so we couldn't open our legs too wide. We'd put the ball on the wood and that's where we would tee off on every hole. And we'd play with just one club and we went around the whole golf course. So bunker shots, everything off the tees, putting, you name it, was all with that club. And we teed off off the benches. So there was no, you couldn't wiggle around or sway or anything else. They had to have a very specific. Now, I didn't know what was going on there. But probably those were the best lessons I ever had as a golfer. And they also taught me to maybe look at things in a slightly different way. Not for the sake of it. But if you want to get something done, then maybe you have to put somebody in a position where it restricts them so they can only do it that way. Trying to tell them to do something, they always keep making adjustments. So rather than telling me to only have my feet so far apart and only swing in a certain way and keep that central pivot point and twist and shoulders under the chin, to keep all that in place, he used the bench to do that. Uh, but in a form of, let's play this game a little bit differently. 
Um, and so you learned how to do things. So everything from how do you get out of a bunker with a plug bore with a six iron um, and all those little factors. So it's only when you look back that probably there was a lot of things going on while I was in that sport and with somebody like Charlie around that later on, you know, maybe that's why I'm a sleep coach. Maybe that's why I've looked at things and gone, that doesn't make sense. I've found something else that does. I'm prepared to, to try and do something about it. Great stuff. So your, um, your book kind of delves into these seven key steps that you lay out in the first sort of seven chapters of your book. So maybe for the listeners, we can go through these. So, you start off in chapter one, kind of uh, telling the readers about uh, the uh, um, need to have an appreciation for um, circadian rhythm. So maybe we just start with that. So the chapter's called The Clock is Ticking, and you kind of introduce the readers to what is a circadian rhythm and, and the uh, the kind of importance of being aware of what a circadian rhythm is. Well, the, the way the sort of R90 technique came together was was trying to pick a set of subjects that we could unlock some practical and achievable uh, techniques, just maybe education awareness, just to bring people from zero to to a better knowledge, but without going too much. And, you know, when you're looking at 24-7, seven days a week, uh, we're not in control of our lives. We think we are. We've got to deal with outside influences every day. Um, so you need something that's a little bit flexible. So yeah, the seven days, 24-7, the seven key sleep recovery indicators were the areas where I could go in and by adding a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of a change in a practical, achievable way, maybe those will all add up uh, and give somebody an overall improvement. So they, the circadian rhythms is, is number one. And it's a lot of people do have some knowledge, uh, sun up and sundown process, but you know, unless they've actually looked into it, which they don't do, um, you don't have a relationship with the human being, the brain, and the light and dark shift, which changes depending on where you are on the planet, and also changes through the seasons, uh, depending on where you are on the planet to a greater or lesser degree. And it's that little area that, that can be quite revolutionary for people. Uh, I think you've experienced some of this with your research and everything else, Robbie. You, you suddenly realize that there's... There are very specific reasons why certain things want to happen at certain times, uh, why you will experience certain things at certain times. And if you're completely out of sync with the sun coming up and the sun going down, then the consequences will be there. But with a little bit of knowledge, um, it can take you a hell of a long way. So that's always a great step for somebody. A very important aspect in the book is this concept of having an anchor, so a consistent waking time, no matter what time you actually do go to bed. Can you just maybe uh, touch on why having a consistent waking time is really important? It's just simply because, you know, you always can, uh, you know, all the research, all the documentation that comes out, you're talking about rhythms and patterns and harmony and the sun comes up and the sun goes down, we're never going to change that process. So it's kind of, there is some structure to this. And when we put a clock on it and we have occupations, whatever that might be, taking the kids to school, you're a, you know, um, working sports, whatever it might be, uh, pretty much the most important part of every day, which is 
very much controlled is the start of the day. So the wake time yeah. and the sleep times can be quite random, um, depending on what we're doing that day or depending what happens or whether it's summer or winter. You know, we sort of wake up in the morning, we get on with our day and we have to do that. Um, so there is that point. But then, you know, if I meet Robbie and we go out for a few beers or go for a ride on a bike or whatever, it's summer. And, you know, we're not really forcing ourselves to, to get back home and get into bed for 11 o'clock to get out of these hours. We'll just finish what we're doing and then, you know, get as much sleep as we can before we start the day again. So I always felt, and it does kind of work, that rather than thinking about specific sleep times and specific wait times, is if you start with an anchor point, um, the next one we're going to come on to is chronotype, but that's, mm. that's another element to this. Is if you get an anchor point, you're much likely to wake at that time every day, you know, uh, consistently. It means you can then start to think about what you do, you know, every 90 minutes in your day. Uh, and that's one of the, the other key aspects for having a, a consistent wait time uh, is very, very, very important to this whole process. Yeah, and just, and just before we move on to chronotypes, just before we move off to circadian rhythms too, um, I, I think you, you made a good point there. I think, I think some people are very much aware of, when they hear the term circadian rhythms, I think the, 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 the immediate thing that pops into their head is the, the light and dark cycles, but there are other very important rhythms within our, in our circadian rhythms, so like uh, um, time in your meals and also temperature is a big one too. So they're kind of areas which I've gotten more appreciation for over the last while, where initially, kind of, when I heard the term circadian rhythm, I only ever thought about, you know, just light and dark, and blue's good in the morning, it's not good at night, and you want more red light in the evening, and, you know, blue stimulates cortisol in the morning, and red stimulates more melatonin at night, and stuff like that. Yeah. There are other important factors in terms of, like, the time of your meals, um, and then obviously, uh, temperatures, as I said there, and even other things like, you know, I think a good way to know that you may be out of rhythm is what time your bowel movements are at, or even if are you having bowel movements on a regular basis. Usually when people get out of sync, they start to have digestive issues and stuff like that because their body's just out of rhythm. So there are yeah. other things to consider. Just moving on to the, the chronotypes. Oh, and by the way, just uh, you were saying there we're going for a few beers on a bike, right? Are, are, we drinking the, <laughs> are, are we drinking those beers on the bike or... Uh, we, uh, we, we can do what we like, can't we? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Um, moving on to chronotypes. Uh, before you touch into chronotypes, so the AMers versus PMers, you, you open up that chapter with a great little story about the penalty shootout, which was a great way of putting it. But <laughs> so, something I want to ask too is, uh, in terms of the research around chronotypes, is there any particular researcher or is there any particular research around chronotypes that you found very good when, when you were kind of introducing yourself to this concept of a chronotype and then just moving on from that, you know, maybe tell the listeners this concept of an AMR versus a PMR. Um, and also that the PMR kind of has to suck it up in, a, in an AMR's world, even though I think you said that the the ratio might be at 60, 40, 70, 30 for more PMRs to AMRs, but it seems that the PMRs got the raw deal. Yeah. Uh, to be honest with you, I've, you know, I've, I've read lots of stuff around it. It was always apparent to me because the term owls and larks had always knocked around. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then, you know, as you start to, I was just intrigued by that because, you know, I was aware that I was very much a morning type, like you would mm. classify the lark. Me so too, me too. I'm a morning type. <laughs> so I was just, I was just personally associating with something that I'd read. Uh, and, and heard about it along my career. Um, there has been 
you know, quite a bit of research here and there, but nothing specifically that I would draw your attention to because there's always this little caveat on the bottom of every piece of research that I see is that, you know, we're still learning about this thing and we certainly don't know enough about it. So it's kind of, but we do know there's a, there's a genetic twist now. Um, and that's been reported on and still being studied. So I think it's just a, a general acceptance that within any group, uh, people can very much identify with those two types. Um, they realize that's how they like to operate if they had complete control. So it's really just a really nice place to start with any person. It's just by identifying that, you then can identify the consistent wait time far easier. You know, I think yours is 6 a.m., mine's 6.30. So we're always waking up some point between 6 and 6.30 and switching the alarm off. You know, so it's, um, and, and we're hungry and we want to get on with our days and we can deal with all those activities mentally and physically in the morning up to midday much better than the afternoon. Um, so, you know, all I've done is with any group that I go into, because it's part of this process, you know, we just look at those 20 players and we just identify their chronotype, their sleep characteristics. And that is a key step to understanding, you know, like you pointed out before with the circadian rhythms, it's just, can we make some little changes of what we do, why we do it and when, not apply it to everybody at the same time, or if we have to, then just maybe we we deal with that side of that group a little bit differently to this side of that group, and we're aware of it, and everything we can do to manage that, maybe we can help those players who are PM chronotypes uh, come into training in the morning, you know, with getting light into their life, getting them up earlier so they've got more time to get into the world and get light into their life. And as you pointed out, you know, fuel up, hydrate, bowel and bladder to get them ready, whereas the AMS are doing that naturally. Um, so there's been quite a lot of, of really great gains when you start to look at that particular thing, and that applies to everybody in life, you know, the, the people who are, you know, 30 minutes away from their workplace and they're still in bed at 27 minutes past eight, still snoozing, where, you know, you and I have been up for a good 90 minutes and are ready to rock. But both these people are arriving at the workplace at the same time. So there's a lot of things that PMers have to do to overcome that process. Uh, and the same for AMers as the day passes on to later, later in the day. Um, so it makes it quite, but whenever I, you know, whether it's a hundred people, 10 people or five people, if you, if you do a little bit of, you know, when I check these things out, pretty much every time I do it, the mix between any group is probably 70, 30 PM chronotypes to AMA. And that's always fascinated me because pretty much we live our lives with an AMA, um, time frame, um, getting up and going to work, getting up and going to school and getting up to do anything. So it, I've always been fascinated by that and it's been quite quite revolutionary to some organisations because um, if they've been doing it for a number of years, they've been able to make changes as it goes along and as schedules keep changing, then they're very much more aware of it and can protect it. Because the, the problem with, with not doing anything about your sleep characteristic or understanding it or being able to to manage it, you start using other things to manage fatigue or stimulants. So you've got a lot of stimulants, 
and you've got a lot of things that people get addicted to trying to overcome fatigue or raising their game because they're at the wrong time of day doing the wrong time of things. Yeah, I think an interesting point too is that like a couple where like one 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 is an AM and one's a PM or how to work around that. And then also, you know, you hear about some schools in the United States who appreciate that the, the chronotypes and teenagers shift, you know, the teenagers need more sleep and that their clock kind of shifts a little bit and then it, it shifts back maybe as they as they get more towards adulthood. But some of them have, have made the school times later because they've become aware of this sort of shifting chronotype. So there is. I mean you can you can see those things now. There's you know Certain countries are starting to really, you know, make some shift. We get it every every year when we shift the clocks uh, into the winter months. You know, it's it makes it harder and harder to do it because we're changing the light exposure around and time frames and children going to school and all of these subject matters come up. But we still don't do anything about changing daylight saving time. We don't change it back. We don't do this. We don't do anything about it. We just moan about it. But there are people, um, as you've mentioned, they are making some steps because it's becoming far more significant because of the well-being red flags. That's because the world we live in today is a more demanding one. And that's where it starts to say we've got to do something about this. And it's great to see them doing it. And uh, even within the NHL in the US, uh, ice hockey, they did actually do a a chronotype test uh, across a players they put the data of all the games that they played and the different times of those games and all the analysis that you can get uh from from a game and from an individual player and when they correlated it all there there actually was some evidence clear evidence that you know certain chronotypes at certain times not only in games whether it's midday or evening um but also during a game uh, they could actually see some differences between the chronotypes uh, and so there is there are certainly are far more people taking this on board and doing something about it yeah there is, there's some stuff out there too about like nfl teams like the east versus west coast teams and, perform- yeah. and performance markers because of the you know the the shift in in the circadian rhythm and it's uh, i'm currently doing a, my master's in strength and conditioning in st mary's in twickenham and like oh, my, right. my yeah my thesis isn't isn't for another like two years uh it's uh, it's spread out over four years of masters. I'm currently in second year. Right. But, but people keep asking me, "Have you any ideas yet? What you like to do?" And I, I, in the back of my mind, I have this idea of of, of something to do with you know circadian disruption or circadian variation and performance indicators. Like you know, may, maybe taking like you know what what will be grouped as your AM and PMers and train them early in the morning and then flipping that around and bringing the training to the evening and seeing the effects on the AMers and PMers at the morning to the evening and, and seeing like trying to measure that with some sort of performance indicators. I think that might be interesting, you know, and how could we maybe manage that or or like manage it in a way that we can decrease the decrements, let's say like so if a PMer has to perform some reason in the morning or an AMer has to perform on the evening, is there any way we can enhance their performance? Even though that they are performing at a time that usually wouldn't be their best time to perform, so it's interesting. We'll, we'll probably touch on it. You know, uh, sleeping in a polyphasic way, shorter periods more often, is one of those techniques that could actually deal with this. And but it's it's never been apparent to people that you can you can sleep in a different sleep wake cycle to just you know monophasic eight hours in one day. And we even recently had you know dialogue and consultation with an NFL player and. You know, the conversation starts to develop because they were born and brought up on the West Coast and they play on the East Coast. And it's sort of, 
actually their circadian rhythm and uh, their chronotype developed around that and everything else is that if you shift them to the other side of just one country, um, you are putting them under pressure uh, because their their circadian rhythms are slightly different. And it gets more significant if you sort of go north or south on the planet, which is it's not surprising. You know, if you're an athlete in Finland, you're more likely to commit suicide than you are anywhere else on the planet because of your light and dark exposure. <laughs> so it's, it's is, really... Is there actual... Really, is there data on that to show that with the Finnish? Well, you know, you can you can actually look at every piece of data, but the, the reality from, from most people except that they do have um, the highest suicide rates on the planet. And yeah, that's yeah. that's written... And one of the things that is quite significant if you're in that zone of the planet is is uh, the light and dark exposure. Yeah. So, it's, yeah. you know, the two correlate, don't they? And, yeah. and can, say, just with the example there, because I've heard Paul Cech say that if you know, like, he didn't present any, like, science to back this up with, but it was just an yeah. interesting thought. I heard him say that if you, like, if you're born, so, like, with the example there of the NFL player who was born in the West, plays in the East, Paul was saying that if you're born in a particular circadian uh, rhythm time zone and you move, like, so let's say I'm in Ireland and I move and I go to live in Seattle in, in Washington and that's eight that's eight hours behind Ireland, you know, like, okay, you, you can obviously, obviously you'll get to a stage where you'll 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 sink to the to the time in Seattle, but he was saying that you'll never fully adapt to that circadian cycle because it's not the one you adapted to early in your life. So you're you're, you're kind of like you're, you're it's exactly that. Is is that true? Like, is that the case that your genetic, your your like your 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 genotype is just set to this particular uh, circadian rhythm? But yet, you know, from a phenotype expression, you could adjust your own, but it still wouldn't be optimal for you. Well, this is what's fascinating about this subject, Robin. You know, we can actually talk at that level. You know, back in 1998, when I fell into the world of sports as a sleep coach, you couldn't even think about having a conversation like this, but. Yeah. It's true. You sort of suddenly realise that when you're shifting players around the planet um, and playing for different teams and all sorts of things, is that suddenly you can actually bring this into the whole process, as you pointed out. And it's yes, maybe previous thinking was you just adapt and become accustomed. But the reality is, when you use technology to to create the data, the fact is that it's always going to be part of you. And doesn't go away. So you can camouflage it, you can adjust and reset. But actually, there's something you do need to consider, you know, that if you've brought that athlete from another part of the world and brought them into this team on the other side of the world, then you've got to keep your eye on that because it doesn't go away. Yeah, great stuff. So moving on then, uh, Nick, you know, your next chapter, you speak about the pre and the, the post period after sleep and I think a lot of people would, you know, understand how important the pre-period is, but the post-period was something that was sort of more, not necessarily new, but I, I guess it was, you brought it to the awareness that this needs to be something that needs to be more a more conscious thing to be aware of. Um, so maybe just touching, like, so the pre-routine and the post-routine, um, and uh, so you kind of you kind of have it down as warming up and cooling down is the name of the chapter, so we just touch into that. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, it's always always been about pre-sleep, hasn't it? Uh, and that's developed on to shut your tech down because of blue light and that will keep you awake and everybody focuses on on that pre-sleep routine. Sort of thinking that what they do in the last hour at the end of the day 
is actually going to have a significant impact on how they sleep. But it's always been the start of the day for me. Um, and that first period of bringing yourself into the world and in a, an unrushed manner as best you can. And you're still being active and you're still, you know, traveling to work. You're still doing things and everything else. But you're just trying to, to keep it in a more managed way to allow, you know, yourself to, to engage with that circadian process. And, and um, you know, like we pointed out, hydrating up and fueling up. If you're a PM chronotype, you're going to need more time to get into that process because you're likely to just get up, rush to the place and, you know, not empty bowel, not do this, not do that. And so the whole rest of the day is going to be affected by that process. Whereas if we do it right at the start of the day, and I think it's just become even more important that, um, you know, with, with, with today's modern world, there's so many other factors that have come in. So it really is important to be very careful about, you know, getting, getting exposure to the right light, as you pointed out. Um, and also, you know, not engaging with the rest of the world through, through your technology and your devices and social media until you've, you know, at least got yourself awake properly. Yeah. Yeah. I think you kind of said like, you nearly enlightened to like, don't, uh, don't write the email while you're almost drunk nearly you know until you're, you know, you're still kind of half asleep and i think that's important too uh, it's something i've i've just done naturally is that i i won't check my email between 6 a.m and 8 a.m because that's like my time to read and get a walk in and just be disconnected and take my time well you're you're very good aren't you and very disciplined but it, it is it is just by making people aware that everything that you do for the rest of the day is going to be influenced about the start of it and uh you know, if your if your alarm is on your device, and as soon as you switch your alarm off, you're starting to filter through all the notifications. You know, and some people are completely engaged with the world before they've even gone to have a wee. Never mind open the curtains or even had a drink, because we get intrigued uh, and we start doing things. And, and certainly, it's a key area in sport, Robbie, because you know the last thing that an elite athlete wants to do in the world today, you start to react to things that they don't know if it's true, they don't know how it's been created, yeah. they don't really know where it's come from, and once you respond to something, right, it's out there forever. And for a young athlete, that can be a very, very, you know, that can really start their day off to a big problem, and then they end up trying to isolate themselves from these things, which is also negative. Now I need to uh, uh, make a uh, confession here. I actually, I actually fucked up. I skipped the chapter. <laughs> so the the first the first chapter again is on circadian rhythms. The second one is about uh, chronotypes. The fourth one is actually the pre and post. So I skipped over the third one, which is actually really important because this talks about the concept of this talks about the concept of cycles versus hours. So you kind of alluded to, and I mean it's also um, within the. Uh, within the title of your book, you know, uh, the myth of eight hours. So, you know, a lot of people, and it's funny, I was speaking to someone the other day and they were like, you know, you need eight hours sleep. And I said, ah, there's a lot more to it than just that. So can you maybe just tell the listeners why we should look at sleep in cycles rather than hours? Well, it, it started a long time ago when I was in football and I was aware of the 90 minute cycle within the clinical side of how you would look at brainwave patterns and, 
sleep stages and all sorts of things. Is, that. is that where you got 90 minutes from, Nick? Cause yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Because, just... I mean, you know, and talking to my colleague, the professor over the years, and, you know, some would like to look at 60 minutes as a period of time. They look at the data from what's called a polysomniograph, which is just tracking the brainwave patterns and can indicate where you are. Uh, as far as sleep is concerned, and they would look at it for, say, 60 minutes and then benchmark it against the next 60 minutes. But in the main, most people like to look at that data over 90 minutes. Um, and, you know, when I'm trying to think, well, I, I, I can't talk about sleep because these footballers are not going to take any interest in this whatsoever because even their parents haven't talked to them. Nobody talks to them about it. So what is this thing about? And they just get on with it. Um, how can I try and you know, bring this together. So, you know, 90 minutes is the game of a football match. And so mental and physical recovery in a 90-minute cycle would make some sense to them. It's something they can relate to as a time frame. And if you times 90 minutes by five, you get 7.5 hours. So that's principally where the eight hours comes from. Um, so that seems to make sense rather than thinking... I try to sleep eight hours, but I don't know why. We're actually on a five-cycle routine, five 90-minute cycles. It then sort of chop your day up. You mentioned before the consistent wait time. So if we sort of go, right, your most consistent wait time is 6, oh, yours is 6 a.m., I think, Robbie. Mm -hmm. As if um, we say, right, chronotype, everything else. So we'll start with the anchor point of 6 a.m. So the first 90 minutes of your day is up till 7.30. Uh, and then we can go out throughout the day getting tiny little recovery breaks every 90 minutes and we can stop to fuel up and hydrate at lunch. Maybe we can then use the other natural sleeping recovery period midday uh, where our urgent need to go into recovery state is, is very high. So we could probably look at a 90-minute cycle there or a, um, a third of the 90 is 30. Um, eight is a third of 24, so everything seems to join up and make sense. So maybe a 30-minute, you know, old nap, CRP, in a controlled way, midday. There's another urgent need period early evening, um, so we can use that. Uh, maybe with a 30-minute or 20-minute, anything under 30 is fine, to boost and balance, to protect the recovery process. So maybe we can sleep. For shorter periods at night, maybe four cycles rather than five, we can roll through those cycles better, less wake-ups, less problems than anything else, and we can take the pressure off as we move around schedules and seasons about, you know, the AMers trying to fall asleep too early or the PMers want to become active later. And so we can help them with this process. We can help the AMers with this process. We can deal with anything that happens in front of us. And we're looking at five cycles in a day rather than just at night and so it seemed to make a lot of sense to them it gave them something they could use it's certainly very effective and hidden within it is this you know any of your listeners just tap it into the browser and you can see that from the day we invented the electric light bulb we've always slept in a polyphasic way shorter periods more often We've only ever had one monophasic approach, eight hours in one block, and that was since we invented that. So it's not unnatural at all to 
to sleep shorter periods more often, take advantage of those other two slots and sleep biphasically or triphasically. There's some naughty sleep-wake cycles, which are the Uberman one. I don't know if ever come across it, really, but it's like 20 minutes every four hours. Um, yeah, I, so actually, no, I actually have heard about that. In terms of polyphasic sleeping, is there any good literature you could point towards for people that want to read up on it? Um, I think if if you just put polyphasic in, there's there's some great stuff that just comes up. I think any if they if they read anything about it, it's all fairly consistent wherever you go. There's nothing uh, there's nothing crazy about it. It's just a very straightforward four major sleep wake cycles up until the 1700s. And only one since then. And um, and when you start to look at that, uh, it sort of makes a load of sense. You know, as you've been going through the chapters of that book, you, when you look back at the circadian rhythms and why things want to happen in certain places and what you need to do in certain places, you also see that principally if you're in sync with that process, then, you know, some of the deepest sleep stages are normally experienced around 2 a.m., it's not specifically 2 a.m. It's around that point in the process. So that's one of the reasons why people go into sleep and then they'll probably wake up to have to empty the bladder and everything else because it's a point in time in that process where you've probably just experienced some deep sleep and you'll quite happily jump out of, out of a sleep state and become awake and maybe find it difficult to go back to sleep for a period of time. But if you... You know, tap it in your browser and look at those polyphasics approach. You know, the Victorians used to sleep for a couple of hours, get up, go and see a neighbor, come back and do another couple of hours and grab something late in the evening. So it kind of suddenly it starts to make sense why a lot of people struggle to go for a whole eight hours because it's a hell of a long period of time. There's too much pressure on it. So overheating, trying to make things comfortable, thoughts coming into your head, you know, bowel and bladder movements and all those things it's it's just too pressurized and too long a period so it works a hell of a lot better and makes it more understanding why certain things happen and i think that's really what it's it's all about you hear you hear groups of people now just going you know i've been working on a five cycle routine for the last six months and then i had a period of time i had to move down to to four cycles six hours a day and uh, it felt great didn't find any side effects, seemed, seemed I could manage my life a hell of a lot better. So I'm sticking to a four-cycle routine for the foreseeable future, you know. Um, and then they start talking about a 28-cycle-a-week routine or 35-cycle-a-week routine and coaches and anybody can actually look at schedules and go, this is where all the mental and physical recovery opportunities arise, you know, midday there, early evening there, put a 90 in there, put a 30 in there put three cycles together there, or they're only going to get two cycles because we're getting back late. da di da di da And suddenly they go, there is a schedule where somebody can actually get 28 or 35 cycles from, so it's a good schedule. It's okay. If it goes below that, then they can do something about it. A question I really wanted to ask you was about this concept of sleeping with seasons so that, you know, depending again on your... Uh your light and dark cycles on whatever part of the world you're living in. But, like, you know, you're in England, I'm in Ireland, so we generally have fairly uh, long daylight in the summer and, and uh, then long darkness in the winter. Do, would, would, do you think that would impact the amount of cycles then you should be getting from, from let's say, summer to winter? And I suppose another common concept that you hear some people in, and I can never say this fucking thing right, antro, antropathology, did I say that right? 
All right, yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to translate. Yeah, yeah, but but you often hear some concepts that come from that field of study of, for instance, that if you did live in an environment where you had long summer, there was more daylight that. Basically, there was more food availability. That's when you made it the most. Um, yeah. And there's this sort of theory that, you know, you actually gained a little bit of weight. You became a slight bit insulin resistance. Your cholesterol levels went up. And these were all pre-hibernation strategies so that when you went into the winter, um, you went from being a sugar burner. You went from being overweight. You went from being slightly pre-diabetic with the insulin resistance to reversing all that from yeah. the cold, the coldness of the winter, the darkness, the hibernation from the sleep. And basically, they kind of hypothesize that we're basically in a perpetual summer environment all year round because we've got artificial light and heated homes and we have abundance of food availability due to just global transport now. So I guess my question there to you is, do you think that seasons should impact the amount of cycles we get in? Should we be getting more from in the winter than from the summer? Um, in, in say in an ideal situation, obviously because of the way modern life is, that might be applicable. And then, do you think there might be something to that theory then of maybe some of the chronic diseases we see is because the body is basically in a pre-hibernation state because we basically just live in you know in constant summer all the time now? I mean, you put that very eloquently. Um, you know, like I say, I'm not uh, a clinician or academic, but these sort of things, you know, that I've listened to over the years, uh, they do resonate, don't they? And um, I think principally, uh, there's nothing specific about my particular comments but I, I i think this particular approach of chopping up your your day into 90 minute cycles and looking sleeping in a more polyphasic way it, it has a much better opportunity for you to manage this as you move through those particular seasons yeah and i think what happens is if you if you've got something that you are using so um you will move from those seasons in, in a much better way because what happens is is the actual season change uh, almost dictates a new approach uh, and the consequences of it, which is what you've just mentioned. So because uh, the increase in artificial light comes as you move into winter, because there's dark out there and you don't have that stimulant and, and the weather change, is you do start to change your habits uh, accordingly. Uh, and that will offset onto your ability to recover well enough. Whereas if you're always working so you can shift from season to season. A good example is, you know, you and I are an AM chronotype, so you're a 6, 6 a.m. wake, I'm a 6.30 uh, a.m. wake. And when we, you know, put the clocks change again in the spring and we get into the summer and we've got all this daylight till 10, 11 o'clock at night, is then I will use that early evening CRP to to take the pressure off the fact that I'm going to be active for much longer today uh, and need to be because it's it's the summer and we want to do it. So you, you sort of try to to adjust your things around and you, you definitely know when you shift into winter that, um, you know, you want to keep the same type of routine up, but you've, you've got to manage your relationship with, with light more importantly, and you do have to help that process, otherwise the consequences are there. So my answer to your question is, is just get a structure in there is probably just the best way rather than thinking about more cycles or less cycles in any particular season. It, it's happening all the time. Do you uh, think a, a daylight lamp then is important in the wintertime just to get that blue light in the morning, even though it's probably not, it's not natural in terms of it's winter and it's meant to be dark, but let's say you're still getting up at six and it's dark. 
and that's your anchor time. Do you think you know getting in in some type of blue light there with a daylight lamp is beneficial, or would you still just let it be dark and, and get get out at about get out when the sunrise is coming up or whatever? And um, because the seasons change, then you do need help, and and you know people people will pick up on you know use blackout in your bedroom to create this process, but you very rarely see the other piece of advice that says you need a dawn weight simulator mm -hmm. if you're going to use blackout. Because the ideal thing, you know, again, when you tap in circadian rhythms or polyphasic sleep-wake cycles, you know, you just get reminded of a very simple process that, you know, we used to live outside all the time and then you come into caves and then we come into houses. So, you know, you should either have no blinds, no curtains, and just wake up with the sun coming up. And um, if you've ever tried it, it's brilliant. You feel great. Yeah, but the trouble great. is, and then when when it goes away, you spend all your time in in you know amber light, red light, firelight, candlelight, because that doesn't stimulate anything, and so you can still be reasonably active. But eventually, um, you're going to fall asleep. Uh, so when you look at that particular process, if you if you don't have any blinds or curtains, then as the seasons change, you know, you can be woken up at four o'clock, half past four, five o'clock, change the clocks, seven o'clock. You know, there's no consistency to it, um, particularly if you do a lot of traveling. So the blackout sort of protects you from that change, but you need you need that blue light in that would come from the sun to wake you up in the morning mm. uh, before you open the curtains. If you don't do that, it's very difficult to for an alarm to wake you up if you're still in dark and no stimulant from light. So, great. yes. Yeah, great stuff. So, uh, Nick, obviously, I want to respect your time and we're on the hour, so if, if you need to go, you just you just let me know. But obviously, I still want to... Have, I, like, I have tons of questions, but I obviously want to try and wrap up on the seven, the seven steps. You've got... You've got Ten minutes tops. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. Well, but listen, <laughs> only because we, we, we're off on another consultation. So. Oh, it's perfect. Like, listen, we can always like I'm always up for doing a part two, and, and we can never fit it in, so it's it's no big problem. Um, okay. uh, the the next chapter I actually really liked because Nick, I'm up at six, and you're up at half six. So if you snooze, you lose, bro. That's that's always been the mantra. But you put it out as a uh, if you don't snooze, you will lose. Uh, so kind of getting people away from this idea that naps. Are for lazy people, and you bring you, you've mentioned CRPs a few times in, in the podcast here. But uh, for the listeners, CRP stands for controlled recovery periods. Um, and I also love the way you gave the example of you actually don't necessarily have to go asleep for uh, to get a controlled recovery period, and you know, just little breaks every 90 minutes, uh, you know, going to the cooler, going to the toilet. You're kind of talking about yeah. even like kind of like falling asleep at a meeting with your eyes open, you don't even know it. And then, yeah. yeah, there was another real funny part I thought too. You were saying like, you know, you can have like an, an almost an anchor point for this too. You were saying you'd like to keep a little stone or something in your pocket and you kind of just grasp it or rub it. And you were saying that yeah. you could be talking to me and I'm having a CRP right now and you wouldn't even, <laughs> you wouldn't even know it. And I'd be like, in one way, it's like, oh, it's true enough. Yeah, I was like, in one way, it's like, that sounds so creepy, but yeah, it's kind of cool. Um, but yeah, yeah you can touch on that for us. Yeah, there's, there's, I think there's two things that sort of put it in the right place. One is, you know, it's absolutely ridiculous to fall asleep behind the wheel of a car on a motorway, isn't it? Oh, yeah. You just think, why, why on earth would you do that? And it sort of puts in context that at the right time, with the right set of circumstances, not specific, just 
then you, you, your brain's going to put you into a sleep state, uh, even when you're in that fearful position. So you're not really in control of it. And like you pointed on, you know, the graveyard slot in business, you know, we're sat in the meeting, the boss is shouting off about strategies and everything else, but you're still conscious, but you've just drifted and you're not really in the room. Uh, and you do that, you do that little nod where like the head yeah. and you get that little reflex and then you, you go, did, 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 did anyone, did anyone see that? Did I get away with it? And then you sort of, you know, you've got siestas and, Mediterranean countries, and you've got all sorts of things. Oh, well, you put it down to the fact that you're knackered. So, no, it isn't. It's because it's midday. The sun's at its highest. It's about to start going down. You've been up for the morning. You're in that particular place. The urgent need graph quite clearly shows you that this is a moment. If you do one or two little things, even sitting in a meeting or sitting in a car, then your brain will naturally go, let's do a quick recovery period. And whether you fall asleep or whether you just zone out, um, it's about just doing that with a more positive approach rather than just not knowing why it's happening and blaming it on something else or increasing your caffeine intake to keep yourself awake or stimulants and drinks and sugars and whatever. And, and it, it happens again, you know, early evening for a lot of people. It's, uh, but you ride past it, you know, because you've got to get home, you've got to cook, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, and then you've got to do that, and then you've got to get to bed because you've got to get to sleep, you've got to do it all again. And and so there is a moment around, you know, five, seven in the clock that there is another urgent need. And the best. So when you stop thinking about, you know, it's, it's Nick who's 57 years of age and he's got his slippers on in front of the fire and having a snooze in the afternoon, um, and all that sort of stuff, and you go, look, circadian rhythms, human beings, polyphasic sleep-wake cycles, chronotypes, when you look at that process, of the sun coming up and the sun going down, we have always naturally, this is what happens to us. And so rather than snooze you lose, is take advantage of it. Because a, a lot of the athletes will always look at this, and they, they feel that they're sleeping less, because shorter periods at night, putting a little 30 minute, you know, at lunchtime or 30 minute in the evening to protect themselves, just putting those little things. They feel like they're sleeping less, but they're still getting their seven and a half hours recovery throughout the day. They're just doing it in a more natural process. They stop worrying about it. They sleep through far more often so they don't get disturbed, which means, you know, better recovery. And all these things add up and they actually think that they're sleeping less when actually they're sleeping exactly the same amount of time throughout the day, but they're just doing it in a slightly different way. And I tell you, you don't have to tell anybody you're doing this. Right? Like you said, um, if, you, if you literally take the right time of day, and you, you mentioned my little stone in my pocket, but if you just get the right visualization in front of you, or you can use sound, or you can just know what you're doing, and you know you're doing it for the right reasons, then you can just either have 15, 20 minutes just zoned out or you can actually fall into a sleep state um, on the floor in your office, sat in your chair, on a train, back of the car, in the changing room, in a toilet, anywhere. You know, you don't have to make it, oh, I'm going for a nap in a nap room because the company's got this recovery room with sleep pods and everything else. Um, if you can't take 
if you can't take something with you, an intervention or a device, everywhere you go to perform, then it can become uh, counterproductive. So you want techniques in mental and physical recovery that you can apply wherever you are, whatever environment you're in, hanging off the side of a mountain, on a, you know, round-the-world boat for three months, or whatever you're doing, Olympics in Tokyo, you've got to be able to apply these things. So that's why uh, the the NAP, we call it the controlled recovery period, doing it at the right time in a controlled way, in a managed way, is brilliant. And allocating time for it really takes the pressure off and enables you to have a flexible approach. So, you know, anybody who's not taking that approach is just heading for a brick wall. As they, uh, as they say in Anchorman, it's science. But yeah, uh, yeah. I was going to say yeah. to you, Nick, uh, the fact that our interview is kind of happening to, uh, in between that little slump, um, the, yeah. have you have you been stroking your stone while you've been talking to me? Have you, have you took a CRP that while you've been on the That doesn't sound stone? very good, actually, to be honest with you. <laughs> have it's I been right. stroking my stone while I've been talking to you? No. It's all right. <laughs> Sorry, did this, uh, this is an Irish podcast. We, we can get away with whatever we want on this show. You can say whatever you want, can you? You can say whatever you want. it's Irish. All right, okay. Uh, one one thing that really kind of strikes on me with your whole with your whole kind of uh, approach to sleep is this idea of quality versus quantity. So you know, like this, you know, are, are you like are you better off getting like six quality hours, so like four cycles, and you got into that deep REM sleep, or like you know, as you said, you could be eight hours in bed and just turning and tossing. So that's one thing that definitely seems to come across throughout the book for definite. Um, well, you know, if you if you if you're trying to redefine something, you don't make things up, um, but you're just trying to redefine what sleep means to us and try mm. to relate it into the world we're in and what's coming, uh, whether we're in, a, in or out of sport. Then you, redefining it is just making it sound, you know, as a coach, and you'll know this, you can't tell people stop worrying or chill out. You know, you have to find a way that they get there. Uh, they go along a little path that equals they chill out and stop worrying about something. But you can't just tell them to do it. So the process of sleeping in cycles rather than hours is they're not, we're not trying to get them to sleep less. We point out that eight hours out of 24 is a good, healthy adult mm. you know, period of time to sleep. It's just all we've done is crammed it into one block, which we didn't do. So there's no argument with a good eight hours, but trying to do it all at once you know, and the way we keep developing our planet and our lives is getting more and more difficult to go for that length of time in a sleep state. So just think of it in a different way. So it's, yeah. it's not less. But what I said before, people think they're doing less because it may be just three cycles or four cycles at night. They get a constant wait time in. So they take, they kind of think that they're getting up earlier and doing more. Uh, they don't go to bed early. They don't sleep in. They make more, take more advantage of their days off the most important day in the week. They stop worrying about just how much sleep they're getting and just taking the cycles. They realize how beneficial a 30-minute period can be between 5 and 7 or midday. Suddenly, yeah, oh, wow. Yeah. So what they feel is, probably, is they've got more hours available to do stuff, not sleeping less. Yeah, no, and uh, <laughs> I, I didn't, I didn't uh, on that, like I... You kind of touched on it there, alluded to like you know, you're. It's not that you're sleeping less, but you're 
you're kind of just dividing the sleep up into more quality chunks. You'll, they'll still generally add up to almost that eight-hour period that uh, you kind of touched on there. And not that eight hours is the magical number either. But it's yeah. something that just came to my mind there. If you read a lot of literature and training, it's been pretty consistently shown in sports science that mm-hmm. if you chunk your, your training sessions, so like they've done research where they're like, if we did a 90-minute session versus three 30-minutes, the three 30-minutes always seems to outdo the 90 minutes for whatever reason the athletes seem to always have more quality output so in kind of chunking your sleep up into these kind of more uh polycystic cycles it it, it seems to almost make sense on a physiological level why, why that would happen but just one, one of the question i want to ask for i let you go to is um like it's is the question of you know like kind of is this like so this is a real book about like strategies for sleep is it still more optimal though to be getting like into bed sooner before midnight and still get the majority of your sleep before midnight and then into the early AM hours then say like you know there's parts of the book you're like well if you can't get to bed you're let's say your sleep time's at 11 well then put that off then an extra 90 minutes because you know you still want that wind down time mm-hmm. um like it, like so while these strategies are great and and you can definitely f- function on them would you would the would the sort of optimal still be to get to bed like well before midnight for most people you know and then there obviously will be some individual difference like some people it's an hour some people it's two and a half hours or whatever um and then get the majority of their sleep in the nocturnal period rather than having to take these crps all the time like um that that's a that's a, a big question um that principally becomes almost individual to the person and their occupation and their lifestyle mm. but um Principally, um, the way you can try and visualize it, Robbie, is when you wake up in the morning, you're at the bottom of a ski slope, bottom of a mountain. Um, And every hour that passes as you go up the mountain, you're getting closer and closer towards the sleep point as that circadian process. So halfway up midday, you need to have a little rest, i.e. take a nap. And then you get further up the mountain, you're... 90% 90% of the way there, you're getting towards 9, 10 o'clock in that clock. You're at the top of that, getting towards the close. So you have a little respite, i.e. the early evening, um, just for the last leg. Once you roll over past 11 o'clock, past 12 o'clock, now you're going down the other side. And this is a much faster, much quicker, shorter period of time. So literally, in that circadian process, as you know, when you get towards that period of time, towards 12 o'clock, you're now in a process of moving towards wake, not... So when you go into sleep at that time of night, it's not that you're going to go more and more asleep. All you're doing is going down towards the wake point again. Mm. So it's certainly, when you look back at the polyphasic approaches we had, as we touched on before, you know, if you did have a routine that allowed you to to get a few cycles in before 12 o'clock. And we mentioned this 2 a.m. period before when you're likely to experience that. So in a lot of cases, if you went to bed earlier, you got two or three cycles in before that particular point. You know, for you, that would be probably 10.30, 12 o'clock, 1.30 would bring you towards the point. And then you can be active for a full cycle and then grab another couple towards the end. But... The trouble is with that is that uh, in sport and, and life, schedules are just all over the place um, and you just can't really control it. So 
it's better for me to have something that's uh, flexible and managed about just shorter cycles so you can go into the sleep state and sleep straight through it best you possibly can rather than thinking about trying to impact uh, athletes to go to bed earlier sometimes and then yeah. later other times it becomes a little bit erratic because they just yeah. can't do it well, like, I, I guess I just asked the question because like I, I I kind of I kind of wanted to make it clear not make it clear but just kind of get the understanding that like that like your, your book is a book for for strategies for sleep and to kind of reduce the anxiety people have about their sleep rather, yeah. than, ra- rather than someone saying oh this is great I'm just gonna like just survive off three cycles now and I'll just make up for it with a CRP or 30 minutes here or there. And, you know, they're kind of maybe missing, missing the point. But again, as, as you've, as you've alluded to, and you've made it very clear in the book, you're not sleeping less. You're just chunking it in to, to, to different periods of time or yeah, in this biophasic cycle. Yeah. When you have a, let's say you look at, you look at anybody's seven day schedule because you bring it all back to there and, Ideally, we've chosen five cycles, you know, 7.5 a day, mm. uh, seven days a week, that's 35. We look at them, the schedule, and it means, you know, we're not going to get back home till 2 o'clock in the morning that night. We've got an early flight here. We've got that there. We've got a game kicking off at 8 o'clock at night, so we don't do this. So we've got to change the schedule around. You look at that, and you see all these opportunities where you can get your 35 cycles. So some days, you will be put under pressure. And it might just be three cycles at night, and you've had to boost that with a shorter CRP, midday and early evening to, to keep the balance. But it's still, across the period of time, you've still got this level of recovery coming in. But some days, you know, whether you know about it or not, uh, as you all know, you know, you wake up in the morning, I think I'm going to do 30, you know, five cycles tonight between 11 o'clock and 6.30, because that's what I'm doing tonight, because that's what I want to do tonight. Um, and then something happens during the day and I can't do it. So I shift to four cycles tonight and CRP tomorrow, or something gets even worse and I shift yeah. to three cycles tonight and then CRP tomorrow. Uh, so it, you can see a structure, you can see a way. What you don't do is suddenly decide you're just going to do three cycles a day, four and a half hours, because you'll crash. Mm. Okay, you you touch in the book that you want to probably get at least four at least four nights a week where you're where you're hitting your your uh, cycle. I think so. I think it's it's. I think anybody anybody you know on your podcast today, you know, if they they look at the next seven days in front of them, they'll see they'll see that you know there's some nice opportunities where getting five straight cycles just at night might work. I think once you start working with these things, you sort of think, well, four straight cycles is more than enough for me. I seem to do it better, less wake-ups, less disturbance. I seem to get through, you know, four and a half hours or six hours much easier. Mm. And then because I'm putting a 30-minute one in later in the day, that seems to work. So it's um, so I don't actually look at my week and think five cycles in any block because you're going back to this eight hours again, aren't you? It's just trying to get a nice balance between nocturnal sleep, shorter get the best out of it and balancing it with other little ones sometimes planned sometimes not okay. you know perfect you just have to take advantage of it as it comes in front of you right perfect so nick nick let's let's wrap it up there and uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna have to get you back on to talk about uh the sleep kit which i'm really interested in and then treating your bedroom more as a mental and physical recovery room and then yeah. I, I really love the concept where you brought in the idea of sleep restriction to help sort of fix somebody's sleeping. You talked with that girl, Rebecca, 
and how actually yeah. restricting her sleep actually helped her to sleep better and then longer in the long run, which I really enjoy. Well, you, you, you know this, Robbie, because when you've got this structure of chopping your day up in 90 minutes and you've got your 6 a.m., 4.30, 3, 1.30, 12, 10.30, 9 a.m., 7.30 in the morning, that's yours around 6 a.m., Mm. is that when you do have difficult times, which all come to us, is that if you are struggling to stay asleep for two cycles, three cycles, four cycles, and you're really struggling because of all sorts of things, and they could be, you know, medical as well as, you know, just life, is the way that you do it, and it's practiced if you're in a clinic, is restrict your sleep. So all you would do is you just go down to two cycles, you wake up, you force the process, and as you start sleeping through, you just go back a cycle, back a cycle, till you're comfortable again. Yeah. And that is a process that's used to reset things. So you've actually got one at your fingertips with this technique that you can apply at any time things get a bit difficult. You can just restructure it. Great stuff. Great stuff. Yeah, definitely. And, and because there's, there's many other questions I want to ask, but like, we'll, we'll leave that for the yeah. second day. So... Listen, I'll, I'll be in touch with with, uh, with um, Caroline. Yeah, Caroline, uh, whoever I need, and uh, we'll definitely book you back in. So just stay online just for like one second. I just want to okay. wrap, wrap this up. So guys, just want to want an absolutely brilliant podcast with Nick Little Hales. Make sure you check out his book. I'll have it linked up in the show notes. And um, for now, though, take care. I'll talk to everyone soon and stay strong. Mm-hmm.